15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again. Thank you for joining us. This is the Space Nuts Podcast. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and joining me, as always, is the great Professor Fred Watson, or astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? Are you well? I am really well, believe <laughs> yeah, it or not. That's good. Yeah, much recovered. Um, just, uh, yeah, it just took a bit longer than it would for most people because I'm just a sicko. But um, we've had a bit of a COVID development in Dubbo in the last day or so. We were notified late last night that a uh, traveller had stopped in Dubbo uh, travelling from Melbourne to the Sunshine Coast in Queensland and stayed the night in Dubbo and visited several uh, places in town. And, of course, um, they were later diagnosed as po- COVID positive. So now the uh, the whole city's on ready alert. Uh, everybody's being urged to go and get tested if they've got symptoms and lock down or you know, isolate. We haven't been locked down yet, but um, we're waiting to see where this uh, where this goes. Hopefully nowhere. But uh, yeah, we um, we we we're on tender hooks at the moment. So uh, fingers crossed this doesn't turn into anything. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a scare. But you know, on the plus side, Fred, I think it'll wake a few people up because I think we've been very complacent in uh, in this part of the world in light of the fact that we haven't had a case in this region um, for a very long time, and people are just sort of sitting back and relaxing and you know drinking their pina coladas and thinking that you know <laughs> what's the rest of the world worried about? Well, you know, it's now you know here it is. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, Fingers crossed. Now you've you've had an interesting time because you went to Siding Spring Observatory and got snowed in. Indeed, that's right. So we were officially snowed in last night at the on the mountain top, Siding Spring Observatory, about 150 kilometres from where you are, and probably 700 metres higher up, I think. Uh, and you probably had a lot of rain last night. Yep. Uh, we got blizzards pretty well. Uh, we essentially were stuck on the mountain top. It was fine because the plan was to be stuck on the mountain top. We, we stayed at the uh, Siding Spring Lodge operated by the Australian National University. But this morning, um, when you and I were planning to have our uh, Space Nuts podcast recording, uh, we were advised that the road was clear, but it might not be clear for very long. So um, we hot-footed it out of Siding Spring and made the six-hour journey down to Sydney, which is where I am now. <laughs> and it rained all the way, Andrew, every yeah. bit of the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've had torrential rain, uh, some of it sideways, because we've had big, strong northerly winds yeah. uh, blowing the, the rain in. Uh, the, the radio station leaked this morning because it was hitting the side of the building. Mm. Uh, so we, we found out where all the holes are, and that's the same place the mice have been getting in. Oh, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's been... Um, it's been <laughs> been a pretty horrific couple of days and uh, we've had temperatures uh, I think uh, we managed to get to five or six degrees mm. today and not much better yesterday um, and yeah there's been snow in places you just don't ever see it I mean Coonabarabran yeah. up uh, around the the Siding Spring Observatory doesn't get it that often 
No, that's right. So it was uh, zero this morning at Siding Spring, 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, and um, it looked, mm. to, to my mind, it looked as though it was set to be snowy for a, a little while. And um, the last time I remember it doing this was, believe it or not, in 1984, uh, when we were snowed in for a week, I think, if I remember rightly. And there were um, snow wow. snow men and snow women appeared all over the mountaintop because that was the only thing to do. <laughs> snow 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 persons, snow persons right. as yes. we called them when I worked for the ABC. Indeed, snow indeed, persons, that's right. yes. That's what they were. Yeah, anyway. well as we speak, Fred, we're getting another torrential downpour. It is bucketing here at the moment. So yeah, we're um we we've had well over forty six millimeters so far, but it doesn't sound like it wants to finish yet and it was supposed to have gone you know, a few hours ago, but it's still around. Anyway, we're going to get down to business because we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, on today's edition, episode 250, whatever it is, 256, I think, uh, we're going to talk uh, about Mavis. Now, you're probably wondering what Mavis is. Well, uh, Mavis is a very um, popular Australian name, but it's also the name of a uh, planned observatory that is going to be more powerful than Hubble, and it's an Australian creation. We're also we're going to look at a dying supermassive black hole. It's, it's not going to go out with a whimper, I don't think. Uh, and uh, we, we had a question from Sean in Charleston, coincidentally, because you'd already chosen to talk about this topic. He was asking questions about the, the Pentagon's release of pictures and videos of, of UFOs, uh, which they've cited around San Diego. So um, he wanted to know if what we thought about that. Well, I have no clue, but we will talk about it. And we've got questions about radio galaxies and uh, the North and South Pole and the Earth's rotation and the melting of the ice caps and what effect it might have. So we'll, we'll tackle all of that today. Okay, let's start. Fred, who is Mavis and why is she in the news? <laughs> yeah, she's not... Um... Well, she's not a person. Uh, normally, Mavis is a who, but this is a what. Uh, and it's actually an instrument which is being built in Australia for the European Southern Observatory's very large telescope, which is in Chile. And the um, basically, the instrument is going to, as you said, it's going to outperform the Hubble telescope on uh, one of the four 8.2-metre telescopes of the European Southern Observatory's very large telescope. That's its name, collective name for these four telescopes and a few other small ones besides. In fact, um, Mavis is destined for... Uh, a telescope which is officially known as UT4, but all those four 8.2-metre telescopes of the European Southern Observatory have got names from uh, Chilean uh, indigenous culture, and uh, UT4 is Yapun. And I can't remember wh which one that is. I think it is... It may be Sirius. I think it's Sirius, uh, the, the the brightest star in our in our tradition uh, in Chilean. Uh, Yapun is... Probably uh, the, the the other ones are named after things like the Southern Cross and other constellations. Anyway, enough of that because that's not about Mavis. Mavis is actually an acronym. You might have guessed that, Andrew, um, and it stands for shocker, shock horror. Uh, so the, it's first the M is actually an acronym itself. It's the M is short for MCAO. 
<laughs> and MCAO stands for multi-conjugate adaptive optics. So what that means is um, some very fancy technology that takes the twinkle out of stars uh, because the twinkle is a blurring effect. Astronomers hate it. Uh, and without the twinkle, you would always have performance equal to the Hubble telescope. So the, 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 the twinkle mm. remover, MCAO, is the M of Mavis. The rest is assisted visible imager and spectrograph. There you are, MCAO assisted visible imager and spectrograph. Um, and so what it does is what its name implies. It will uh, uh, allow you to form images of celestial objects with incredible clarity uh, because you're essentially eliminating the atmosphere, even though you're uh, in a telescope on, on Earth. It's about um, 12,000 feet, I think, rather more than three, three, three and a half thousand meters, I think, is the, uh, is the height of the VLT thereabouts, um, uh, and, and mm. that gets you that gets you some some of the way. But the uh, the adaptive optics system is what really eliminates the the blurring effect of the atmosphere, and so it will form images that rival Hubble. And, and in fact, uh, essentially, it's expected to be three times clearer than Hubble. Uh, sometimes these things take a while to get to, but uh, the other side of it, the spectrograph, that's the really important bit because uh, a spectrograph is that universal tool that astronomers use to probe what stars are made of, to probe what's going on in galaxies, to probe whether stars have planets around them. All of these things come out of observations with a spectrograph in which the light is broken up into its rainbow colours and we analyse that barcode of information that is superimposed on, on the rainbow spectrum. So it's, uh, it's fantastic stuff. Mm. It's a number of universities that are involved. The, um, the leader, actually, of the project... Um, well, I think he's certainly one of the senior members, a chap called Richard McDermott, who I know well. He's at Macquarie University here in Sydney. Richard and I have in common that we were both educated in the same Scottish university. Uh, the University of St Andrews formed, oh. in, formed in 1413, and I was there a couple of years later, Andrew. <laughs> That's what it feels like anyway. <laughs> you beat me to it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm sure it does. Well, uh, do, do we know when this will be online? Um, um, I, I don't know, but it, it's what's happened is the uh, Macquarie and other institutions, including the University of Sydney, uh, and um, I think there's a, an Italian uh, component as well as the Australian National University, um, they have done a, a sort of feasibility study, which has been accepted by the uh, you know, the gurus at the European Southern Observatory, and they're now kicking off to build it. The expectation is about seven years to build. Uh, and these things, uh, they take mm. a long time, Andrew. They're not quick uh, to, to build. Um, one of the things that I was doing up at Siding Spring Observatory was um, basically sorting out a lot of stuff in the laboratories that I used to use when I built instruments, and I took decades to do it. So uh, that was uh, in the days when I used to build fiber optic instruments instruments for astronomy. So uh, it's, um, yeah, seven years is a sort of typical time for a major facility instrument like this. But what a thing to look forward to. Uh, as Richard said, he said that the instrument will permit scientists to push into a new frontier of the furthest and faintest things we can see. Wonderful. Wonderful. And possibly answer some of the questions that have been posed for many, many years. And yeah, can't wait. Uh, but seven years, all right. Well, I seven think we years. can handle that. It's better than trying to wait for a, a message from interstellar space, isn't it? Uh, well, that's right, a telegram or okay. something like that. Uh, yes. Moving, 
Yeah, that's right. Or we'll carry a pigeon, uh, a space pigeon, of course. Um, now, moving along, uh, a supermassive black hole is dying. Uh, how does a supermassive black hole die, and will it go out quietly, we hope? <laughs> No. <laughs> um, so this this is uh, <laughs> I kind of figured. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's so um, we have in space what we call AGNs. Uh, an AGN is an active galactic nucleus. In other words, it's something that is detected usually with radio telescopes, and it's telling you that the supermassive black hole at the centre of this galaxy. Is uh, is voraciously consuming its surroundings. So there's this accretion disk of material spinning around it, uh, which is being re re refocused. Some of it goes inside the black hole. Some is refocused by the magnetic fields of the black hole to form jets, which point uh, right angles to the the accretion disk. We've discussed that many times. Uh, but the active ones. Uh, are yep. very strong in radio emissions. Um, and AGNs have been observed, active galactic nuclei have been observed for many decades. They are the stock in trade of the radio astronomy fraternity. They were uh, high on the list of, you know, of targets when I was a young astronomer. Uh, and in fact, the most extreme form of active galactic nucleus is something called a quasar, uh, which is a, an AGN that's kind of going gangbusters. Um, however, what's happened here is uh, that uh, we've seen an active galactic nucleus that has shut down it, it has actually already shut down uh, in in other words the the <clears throat> hyper strong activity of the black hole has switched off probably because it's run out of stars and gas and things to, to gobble up uh, the uh, area around the black hole at the center of the of its galaxy is now devoid of the of the gas that it needs to keep it active so the active galactic nucleus has switched off but we can still see it because there is something that I've, I've always been fond of these things it's called a light echo so what you're seeing is the basically the the ends of the jet of material that was squirted out of the black hole you can't see the jet anymore but you can see the sort of gigantic mm -hmm. bubbles of gas at the end of the jet which are still being illuminated by the the light from the black hole itself which is oh sorry from from the active galactic nucleus itself which has taken a dogleg path to get to us it's it's gone out from the black hole it's illuminated this jet that's been squirted out above and below the black hole and then that's reflected it to us and it, what it's done is put a 3000 year delay in the time that the light has taken to get from this galaxy uh, and that's exactly what we call uh, it's what we call a, um, a light echo uh, we see it in in many phenomena sometimes mm. a supernova will will shine on a dust cloud nearby and and it, the dust cloud lights up years and sometimes decades after the supernova has exploded but this is a very nice example of that happening uh, in the case of a, an active galact galactic nucleus yeah I, I think we've touched on similar things before where we talked about an event that happened you know a long time ago but yeah. uh, because of uh, gravitational lensing you could you could watch it more than once yes or, or, or reflection <laughs> i suppose this is similar in that it's been a delayed effect yes that's mm. exactly right it's mm. the it's the delay that okay. makes it a light echo all right so tell me what is the um you know 
future of this black hole? What's, what's ultimately going to happen to it? Well, the, the black hole will stay contented at the centre of this galaxy, whose name, by the way, is ARP-187. Uh, Halton ARP was uh, an astronomer. I met him once years and years ago uh, who catalogued uh, active galactic nuclei uh, and galaxies, in fact, optical galaxies. But he... Uh, sorry, so the, the, the uh, black hole will continue, but, it, but it's, it's run out of steam in the sense that it's, it's used up its fuel. Now, we think that is a process that... Is you know it, it it basically shuts down an active galactic nucleus because once the fuel's gone in the vicinity of the black hole, there's nothing for it to consume and there's nothing. Uh, it's it's actually the disk of spinning material going around the black hole that causes the energy to come out. Uh, if that's not there, then you don't see it, mm. and you've got what might be called a quiescent black hole, one that is not actually uh, radiating lots of energy. So it'll just sit there like a blob and do nothing for. A long, long time. <laughs> That's about the size of it, Andrew. Yeah, that sounds like me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no All comment right. there. No comment whatsoever. <laughs> no, I'm just paraphrasing my wife. You're listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Time for a word from our sponsor, NordVPN. Do you want to protect your data and enjoy the internet without restrictions? Of course you do. And the way I've been doing it is with NordVPN. NordVPN is a VPN service that helps people access the web freely. It gives users complete anonymity online, protecting them from snoopers and hackers. You can use it on any device, including mobile phones, tablets, laptops or desktop computers. With NordVPN, you can bypass censorship filters and get access to websites that are blocked in certain regions of the world. By using NordVPN, you'll be able to stream videos with no buffering while abroad or at home. Enjoy unlimited bandwidth for all your devices so you don't have to worry about running out of data again. Protect yourself from cyber attacks by encrypting sensitive information like banking passwords, credit card numbers, all those sorts of things, which means nobody will be able to see what's inside your messages if they're intercepted by a hacker. Plus, they're rated number one for speed in a recent test of VPN services. It's a no-brainer. And our special offer makes getting started easy. Get started with our special offer today, save some money, support Space Nuts, and experience true internet freedom for yourself. Go to nordvpn.com slash spacenuts or use the coupon code spacenuts to get a two-year plan plus one additional month with a huge discount. That URL again, nordvpn.com slash spacenuts or the coupon code spacenuts. And I'll put the URL details in our show notes and on our website. Now, back to the show. Space Nuts. Well, I do have some very exciting news, and that is uh, in regard to the Space Nuts shop. Now, if you go to our website, spacenutspodcast.com, and click on the shop link, you will find our shop. And we've told you about things before, the T-shirts, the, the, the polo shirts, the stickers, the, the mugs, the, the dad caps, all of that sort of thing. We have introduced some new products. We have socks. We have pom-pom beanies. I'm not kidding. We've got uh, the Eco Tote Bag. Wait a minute. I'm going to turn the page. Oh, laptop sleeves. We've got some of those. We've got bucket hats. Uh, we have got, um, well, obviously there's books in there. There's a brand new one in there too called The Hitler Paradox. Interesting. Uh, we have got uh, 
just about everything you could name. Uh, and if I go to the final page, you've got to go right to the end, you will find, I'm not kidding, the unisex hoodie, but we've also got a bomber jacket. Yes, we have a bomber jacket with the Space Nuts logo on it. So if you would like to grab something like that for yourself or a dear friend or relative, go to spacenutspodcast.com, click on the shop link and have a look through the vast array of product. Uh, Hugh has been working his uh, proverbial tail off to, um, to, to bring us new stock and new ideas and new concepts. I think you can even get a pair of flip-flops. I use the American ter- terminology for you in New Zealand, jandals, and for the Australians, thongs, and you wear them on your feet. Just thought I'd better remind you of that. So check it all out at the Space Nuts podcast uh, website. Okay, Fred, uh, I know you're getting yourself some flip-flops, but uh, I'm going to play a question that's come in for us. Uh, This uh, comes from Sean in Charleston. He actually asks us two questions, but it's the second question that we're going to be discussing about these uh, these photographs of UFOs. So this uh, this is from Sean. Hello, Andrew and Professor Watson. This is Sean from Charleston, South Carolina, U.S., And I have two questions. My first question is, with the outer universe being 13 billion light years away and change that you can see, and the light took 13 billion years to get here, does that mean that in reality the outer edge is now 26 billion years, light years away? That's my first one. Second one is... Uh, for the both of you, actually, what your opinion is with all this U.S. Navy UFO things flying around off of San Diego, you know, flying at high speeds, making 500G right-hand turns, um, what your colleague's opinion is? Is it all bunk, or do you think there may be something of it? not as little green men, but as the technology of being able to do this. Thank you. You have a great show. I can't wait to hear it every time. So you guys have a good one. Thanks again. Thank you, Sean. Uh, He asked some interesting questions. I think the one about the um, 13 billion light years, has we've actually tackled that before, and it it doesn't double. You might want to just... um, yeah, finish that off for me, Fred, because that's as much as I can say. <laughs> no, uh, this, uh, so Sean's question is is a good one. Um, so, and he's on the right lines, um, but it's actually a little bit more than what he's suggesting. So, if you think about this, okay, we see uh, the the Big Bang. We can see the flash of the Big Bang in the cosmic microwave background radiation, and that is at a look back time of thirteen point eight billion years. Uh, But it's not at a distance of 13.8 billion light years because the universe has expanded by a huge amount in that time. Uh, So since the expansion of the universe has been going on ever since that light left, uh, we can calculate that actually the distance to that horizon, the cosmic microwave background radiation, is more like, and I can't remember the exact number, it's, it's more like 40 billion light years. But 
we're seeing it as it was thirteen point ah, okay. eight billion years ago. So the distance—it's where the distance and the the time really get separated. Um, so one is a look back time, right? And the other is it, we actually give it a name. We call it the proper distance, um, um, rather than something called the co-moving distance. It's, there's a you know there's there's, there's some technicalities there, but um, the the uh, 40 billion light years accounts for the expansion of the universe that's taken place in that 13.8 billion years. Okay, that's got rid of that one. Okay. So what gotcha. do you think what do All you right. think of the now, UFOs? Andrew? Yeah, what what <laughs> I I I've only I haven't really delved into the story myself. I've I've heard it in the news a few times but I haven't really read much about it. Uh but I think I'll stand by my previous statements in regard to this. I I certainly believe that there is technology in the world that is beyond anything we've been privy to, and I do believe there are um, um, capabilities that we uh, are achieving beyond the technology that we know of today. And so I think this is this is a human creation, and I think these uh, po- possibly. Um, uh, military type applications that are being tested, and I don't believe they're manned because I don't think anyone could survive a 500g 90 degree turn. But I do think that there is probably some technology in play here that we are not privy to. That's my theory. Until I'm proven wrong, I'll stand by that. <laughs> okay, it's <laughs> a good one. Um, so the, the, the reason I was going to raise this topic today um, is because there's a very interesting, really interesting article on the conversation. Uh, UFOs, how to calculate the odds that an alien spaceship has been spotted. And it's by um, a scientist at the University of Oxford. And he has applied something that in astronomy we use a lot uh, it, it's uh, really the, almost the cornerstone of some of the deductions that we make about the universe. And it's called Bayesian statistics. Uh, Bayesian statistics actually is kind of slightly different from normal statistics because you start off with something called a prior, which is an assumption that something might be the case. Um, so um, I don't want to go into the details, obviously, because it's very mathematical. And um, between you and me, Andrew, I'm not sure that I understand it either. But um, anyway, this uh, scientist... Uh, uh, uses Bayesian statistics to come up with more or less what I've been thinking as well, um, which is that yes, they there is clearly something going on, and you've you've you know you've put your finger on it that it, it could be uh, as yet un, uh, unadvertised technology. Uh, that there is something going on, and uh, the idea of a, a UFO, an un- unidentified flying object, we we all associate that with the idea of alien technology, um, you know, extraterrestrial technology. But actually, the expression itself doesn't demand that. An unidentified flying object is just that, an unidentified flying object. Um, and when you apply yeah. this sort of statistical analysis. Uh, you you get to the conclusion that it it could be one of many many things. In fact, the author of this article uh, actually, um, uh, I, I think he was I think he was being a little bit tongue in cheek, uh, but he said, um, you know, these these things in the sky could equally well be fairies, intrusions from the fifth dimension, swamp gas, foreign drones, 
sapient octopuses or anything else. Um, and, you know, th that's equally probable as it being, <laughs> is it being alien visitation. Um, there are a few other things, and th th there are some things that uh, you would have thought might have been ruled out, but that might behave the way that, uh, that some of these objects have done. Uh, one, I spoke to one of the pundits uh, a few days ago, uh, somebody um, who's kind of close to the action on uh, uh, on uh, Space Nuts, uh, it, it, and as I won't give his name, <laughs> but um, I thought this was a very good uh, guess at what might be going on here, weather balloons. Uh, weather balloons get everywhere, and because they uh, can move yeah. with the jet stream, uh, they can move extremely quickly. And, of course, a 500G turn means is, is absolutely no problem to a weather balloon. Uh, and that's... But my point is not so much copying, um, uh, you know, copying what Stuart uh, <laughs> mentioned uh, on uh, on our sister uh, podcast, but um, it's to say that this these things could be anything. Um, and it's... Uh, mm. You know, the Bayesian analysis that this um, scientist at Oxford University uh, went through uh, came out with a one in one billion probability that th this was a result of extraterrestrial technology. And part of that comes about because, yeah. uh, like me and many other scientists, uh, we are very um, uncomfortable with the idea of there being much other than uh, rudimentary, perhaps, you know, single-celled organisms out there in space, just because of this huge jump that you need in thermodynamics to get from a single-celled organism to a multi-celled organism. Now, of course, um, we because there are 10 to the power 23 planets, in the, at least in the universe, you can never rule it out. But um, the, the, the thing that's, you know, that what, one of the other things that pushes down the, uh, the, the statistics as far as alien visitations is concerned is just the enormous distances between stars and galaxies. Um, and this all mm. plays also into the Drake, the, the Drake equation. Uh, and, um, you know, when you put the modern numbers into the Drake equation, you get very, very low probabilities of there being species like ourselves uh, within our own galaxy, if not uh, within a, a much broader swathe of the universe. So I think, like you, Andrew, that eventually we'll find out what these things are, uh, but they are not necessarily anything to do with extraterrestrial civilizations. No, most likely not. And uh, yeah, there's there's nothing to suggest that it's one single uh, thing. It could be a multitude of um, phenomena. Uh, it could just be a trick of the light. It could be swamp gas, as, as they suggested. <laughs> it, it it could be technology. It it yeah. could be any number of things. It um, it could be ball lightning on occasion. You just don't know. Yeah. Um, and until we've got conclusive evidence, then we just keep looking. Um, one of the things uh, that um, this author of the conversation article, and I might tell you his name, he's Anders Sandberg, uh, and he's at uh, Oxford Martin School in the University of Oxford. Uh, one of the things that he, a comment that he makes is that science did not believe in meteorites until trustworthy multiple witnesses brought in rocks found to be of unknown minerals. And our understanding of the solar system allowed for asteroids. So it, it's, um, 
it's interesting to look at history as well when you think about these things, as well as Bayesian statistics. Uh, and maybe you know, in a few years' time, mm. we'll all be chuckling at uh, the way we were we were deluded into thinking this was something uh, you know extraterrestrial. Yeah, yeah, very likely. Uh, but isn't it so human of us to try and attach? the unknown to something that we can understand or, or want to believe. And, you know, that's, that's been documented throughout human history. So, uh, even, you know, we, we think we're so advanced and so very clever today, but uh, I think there are times where we demonstrate we are still, you know, quite naive, I think would be the nicest way to put it. <laughs> but it's, this it's is good. the Space Nuts podcast. <laughs> I was just going this to is say, the Space Nuts podcast. You're with Andrew Dunkley, and oh, go on. We've got a time no, delay, which is causing us some problems. So I don't know why problems. that is. We call it the internet, I think. Um, I was just going to say, Andrew, it's great on. fun. It's great fun as well um, for us uh, to, to speculate on what it might be, as long as you don't take it too seriously. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> for certain. Okay. We're going to take a little break. This is the Space Nuts podcast. Andrew Dunkley here with the good professor, Fred Watson. Roger, you're live here also. Space Nuts. Just want to shout out to our patrons, the people who put their money where our podcast is. We thank you uh, deeply uh, with as much gratitude as we can foster uh, for the people who put uh, a couple of dollars a month into the podcast because they believe in us. We we really do um, think you're wonderful. So thank you. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website and just click on the supporter link and you can find out how to do it. And there are several different ways and there are all sorts of different levels. So you don't have to spend a fortune you don't have to cash in the maserati uh you can unless it's a tiny little one that you buy in a box from a toy store um but uh it's it's not uh, expensive to do and it's totally optional but uh, if you go to spacenutspodcast.com click on the supporter button you can find out how to support us and of course as i mentioned earlier the space nuts shop that helps us as well and you get something for your dough um you know a sticker or something along those lines. But uh, anyway, thanks for your support. Appreciate it. Uh, those who choose Patreon or Supercast, uh, it's a personal choice, but uh, you're all wonderful, wonderful people. Now, Fred, question time. I know we ran a question earlier, but only because it related to something that you wanted to talk about. Let's uh, go through a couple of uh, audio questions now. And this one comes from Queensland. And if I may just take a little moment to self-indulge, Paul, 50 to 6. 50 to 6. I will say it again. 56. That was the score between New South Wales and Queensland in this week's State of Origin, Game 1. I will eat my words when we lose the Series 2-1, but for now, I'm going to gloat. <laughs> this is Paul. G'day, Professor Fred and Andrew. This is Paul from Queensland, Australia. Uh, congratulations on being one of the top 10 astronomy podcasts in the world. It's an awesome achievement, but no great surprise for us fans. Professor Fred, my question is about radio galaxies. What exactly are they, and how are they different to ordinary galaxies? My second question is related to the first, and it's this. Would the Milky Way be considered a radio galaxy if it were, say, viewed from the Andromeda galaxy? Or is it just not emitting enough radio waves from, uh, I guess, the central black hole? I think it's got something to do with that, but I'm just not sure. Anyway, I um, hope you can uh, set things straight for me. And 
thanks again for your amazing work, you two, and to Hugh for putting everything together. Uh, cheers. Okay. Thank you, Paul, and commiserations. And Hugh doesn't do anything. Next, he does. He works very hard behind the scenes. Okay. Uh, Paul's asking about radio galaxies. What are they and are we in one? Yeah, so it sort of follows on from what we were talking about earlier with the active galactic nuclei. Um, and r radio galaxies were detected in the early days of radio astronomy, um, not long after the Second World War. Uh, and that basically that was the name that was given to them, radio galaxies. And then people realised that um, some radio, some galaxies were much stronger in radio emission than others, and that's how the whole idea of active galactic nuclei came about. What we were just talking about of uh, of uh, black holes consuming their surroundings, uh, the surrounding gas and stars at a highly voracious rate, and uh, basically re-emitting that some of the debris um, through through the the jets, the polar jets of the galaxy. So um, that is the, you know, that's the, the, the more extreme end of the radio galaxy spectrum, if I can put it that way. And, uh, and as I mentioned, the further, even more extreme end is, is what we call quasars. Uh, they were originally called quasi-stellar radio sources, and that kind of hints at the confusion when they were discovered, because quasi-stellar means looks like a star, but they're actually in radio, and they're point sources. We now understand them as being uh, extremely active galactic nuclei. They, they're caused by black holes that are really devouring what is around them. Um, so to, to the second part of the question, which I don't think we've been asked before, Andrew, it's a, it's a really good question. Is our mm. Milky Way galaxy an active galactic... Sorry, is it a radio galaxy? It, it is in the sense that the nucleus is indeed uh, emitting radio waves. And uh, it was one of the first um, radio sources in the sky that was di discovered, the galactic centre, uh, after the sun. The sun was the first uh, thing that uh, radio astronomers found, actually before the Second World War. But the second thing, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying this, was the, the centre of our galaxy. Um, a, a radio source that we now call Sagittarius A star. Um, Sagittarius A is, the, the, in fact, it's, it's the, first, uh, s s um, the first source um, in the constellation of Sagittarius, hence the name. And the star came about to, to, to distinguish it from an, another object. Um, it's also strong in X-rays um, and often, uh, well, that's probably where the, the A came from as well because of the X-ray radiation that comes out of it. Uh, so in that sense, our galaxy is yeah. a radio galaxy, but it's not a strong one because we do, definitely do not have an active galactic nucleus in the centre of our galaxy. And that's just as well because it would be uh, really radiating, uh, you know, electromagnetic waves, X-rays, uh, radio waves, infrared as well, uh, much more violently than it is now. However, and this I hadn't thought of this, Andrew, when we talked about the uh, the active galactic nucleus a few minutes ago, but um, we know from observations of uh, gas clouds above. Uh, and below 
I think it's particularly below uh, the black hole in the centre of our own galaxy, Sagittarius A star, uh, we can see fluorescence in those gas clouds that suggest that, um, and I can't remember how long ago it was, I think it was only a matter of a few, uh, maybe 70,000 years ago, that sticks in my mind, that our galaxy had a bit of an outburst. Something got gobbled up by the, uh, the, the object in the centre and there was a burst of radiation, which we still see uh, mm. in the illumination, the fluorescence of these gas clouds. So um, it, it, that, it probably would have been quite radio loud at that time and maybe, and I'm just guessing here, but maybe an observer on a planet of a star in the Andromeda galaxy might have been able to observe it in radio waves. So they would have said, oh, the Milky Way is a radio galaxy. Uh, but then it switched off uh, and for fortunately still is. Right. Okay. There you have it, Paul. So, yes, but not a very good one, I think <laughs> would be the way to describe it. Um, Medi mediocre. Thank you for your question. <laughs> mediocre, yeah. Adequate. <laughs> okay. And um, 50 to 6, Paul. Just wanted to say it one more time. Let's move on to uh, a question from uh, Graham who comes to us from southeast London. Hi, guys. It's Graham from southeast London. I have a question regarding uh, the poles and the, the rotation of the Earth around the sun. When the ice caps were increasing, at some point they must have been, when the, the northern hemisphere was on one side of the sun and in the winter season more ice would have been deposited on that part of the planet, and then as the, in six months later, as the planet got to the other side of its rotation, the ice would have been directly deposited more on the, the opposite pole and the opposite side. And if you take into account the Earth's tilt, each one of those could possibly have increased the Earth's tilt. So one pushing, one side pushing in one direction, and the other side pushing in the other direction. So the more ice and snow that, that accumulated on either pole in the winter seasons could have contributed to the tilt of the earth. And now that the poles are melting and all the waters theoretically can travel anywhere on the earth it wants to, but most likely it's going to level out. Um, do you think that the, the rotation of the earth the axis will go back to a more yeah and uh that's where graham got cut off because he he only had uh one coin and uh he needed two for that particular question um unfortunately but uh we we got the gist of it graham we got the gist of it ice and water melting yeah. freezing tilting so andrew um you know, it's correct that these things do have uh, an effect on the Earth. Uh, not so much on the tilt. The tilt of the Earth's axis is very, very stable. It does vary a little bit. Uh, and, of course, it, it precesses around that phenomenon called precession, which is what makes spinning tops not just spin on their axis, but also um, they, they, they do this slow rotation as well. The Earth does that once every 26,000 years. But um, what it does do... Uh, is change the speed of rotation of the Earth very, very slightly. I mean, we're talking microscopic amounts here, but 
there is a change. And you and I have spoken about this before because um, I think, uh, you know, we, we, we've, we've often said the, the day is getting longer by a tiny amount. It's about two milliseconds per, hundred, per day per hundred years. Um, and we mm. compensate for that with leap seconds, uh, uh, occasionally going into our time system. Uh, so t- tiny amounts, that, that j- gradual slowdown of the Earth's rotation is due to the tidal interaction between the Earth and the Moon. But it's not just a uniform slowdown. And I think we spoke a few months ago about the fact that um, for a certain period, and I can't remember when it was, it's within the last few years, there was a period when the Earth's rotation actually speeded up slightly, only by a tiny amount, but nevertheless uh, something that's measurable. Uh, and one of the um, factors that was cited for that was the possibility of melting ice it's you know the fact that the pole the poles are changing the polar ice caps are definitely reducing uh, there's some interesting physics in why climate change actually is happening more rapidly at the poles than it is elsewhere and it's all sorts of feedback mechanisms it's to do with jet streams and things of that sort but um the the uh, speculation was that these large-scale movements of water, as and it's meltwater, is actually changing the rotation period of the Earth by minuscule amounts. But nevertheless, with our current array of atomic clocks, it's measurable. We can measure these things. So the answer is yes, it's, uh, it's definitely changing. It's not quite as straightforward as, uh, you know, as, as the... The, the question outlined, but it is happening. Uh, and um, the, the, the ice on the Earth's surface does change the way it rotates. Well, I suppose to use a really rudimentary example of it, it would be like cargo shifting in a truck. <laughs> it will move the truck. Yeah, yeah it'll move the uh, truck. Probably that's more right. dramatically than it will the Earth. Yes, mm. that's exactly right. Uh, yeah. That's that's possibly a way of of, of describing it. Mm. It's a great question, though. Thank you, Graham. Really, uh, really appreciate it. Um, I think that brings us to the end, Fred, of another episode. Uh, I, I I do want to actually send out an apology to uh, Marie Claire who um, messaged me the other day about the podcast and said, "I hope you and Fred aren't wearing the same colours." <laughs> um, yeah, well, we are tonight. <laughs> Completely by accident. Yes, and it was pure coincidence. We do not plan this. It just seems to happen. We're on the same wavelength uh, absolutely. because we're in a radio galaxy. I think that must be it. Uh, also, uh, if you do have questions for us, don't forget to upload them through our website, uh, spacenutspodcast.com. Click on the AMA link and you can send us an audio question or you can send us a text question through the email interface. We take both. And if you want to do both, that's totally up to you. Uh, And uh, just a reminder to um, uh, everybody that we do have social media uh, platforms. We've got a a Space Nuts podcast Facebook uh, page. Uh, We're on YouTube. We're on Twitter. We're just about everywhere. But uh, there is a Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook, which is completely separate, and it's basically run by the, uh, the, the listeners. So you might want to join that and have a chat to uh, some people uh, about uh, what, you know, 
you are working on or interested in. Um, people often pose questions to one another and everybody has a lot of fun answering them. So, um, yeah, uh, that's an option too. The Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook, uh, which is, is well worth visiting. Uh, Fred, that brings us to the end of episode 256. Thank you so much, sir. Stay warm if you can and certainly stay dry. I'll do my best, Andrew. Thank you very much. Uh, and once again, apologies for the delay because of uh, ice and snow at the summit of Siding Spring Mountain. Indeed, indeed. Uh, nice to see you again. Thank you very much. We'll catch you next week. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, uh, part of the team here at the Space Nuts podcast and back in Mission Control. Uh, thank you again to Hugh Drury, who puts it all together with um, uh, gaffer tape and duct tape and chicken wire. And he does a fabulous job of it. Actually, I did work for a radio station that was put together with chicken wire, but that's a whole different story. From me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks again for your time and for your um, uh, continued support of Space Nuts, and we look forward to talking to you again on the next episode. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.